We'll go ahead and dismiss our kids this morning to Kids Church, kindergarten through fifth grade. Uh, can go with Miss Janae this morning to Kids Church. You know, as, as we were watching, everyone was watching the Weather Channel last week. I know that, that we were all praying and hoping that, that Texas got Hurricane Harvey and it didn't make its way east. Uh, but now that, that it has, uh, it, it, is, uh, it is very sobering to know that they're dealing with the exact same thing that we dealt with uh, this time last year. So uh, we do want to remember and pray for, uh, for those neighbors, friends, and brothers and sisters uh, in Texas. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of 1 Samuel chapter 10 as we continue to walk through uh, we continue to walk through the book of 1 Samuel. Uh, last week we talked about the anointing of Saul, how God had, uh, God had privately anointed Saul, how Saul had been out wandering around the uh, nation of Israel. He had been out wandering looking for his father's lost donkeys and he found his way into the, the city where the, where the prophet was and as the prophet was there, the prophet anointed Saul a king and we talked about how God has uh, God has us wandering around. God has us through different, uh, uh, through different circumstances and situations working in our lives to bring us to the places where we are. Well, today we're going to be looking at the public coronation of Saul as king. Uh, he's been anointed as king privately, and today he's going to be uh, anointed, and uh, we're going to see the coronation of Saul uh, this morning in 1 Samuel chapter 10. We're going to read verses 17 through 27. Saul, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verses 17 through 27. Thereafter, Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah, and he said to the sons of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought Israel up from Egypt, and I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the power of all of the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But you today rejected your God, who delivers you from all of your calamities and from all of your distresses. Yet you have said no. But set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. And thus Samuel brought all of the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. And he brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its families. And the Matrite family was taken, and Saul the son of Kish was taken. But when they looked for him, they could not find him. Therefore they inquired further of the Lord, Has the man come here yet? So the Lord said, Behold, he is hiding himself by the baggage. So they ran and took him from there, and when he stood amongst the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. And Samuel said to all of the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? Surely there is no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. Then Samuel told the people the ordinances of the kingdom and wrote them in the book, and placed it before the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people, each to his own house. Saul also went to his own house at Gibeah. And the valiant men whose hearts God had touched went with him. But certain worthless men said, How can this one deliver us? And they despised him and did not bring him any present. But he kept silent. Let's pray. God, as we see this passage, we see your public anointing of Saul 
regardless of Saul's merit. Lord, you chose him according to your pleasure and your will. Lord, I'm thankful that you chose us according to your pleasure and your will, not because of our merit. God, may you speak to our hearts this morning through your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, I pray that as we leave here today that, that, that our lives, that we will make a decision to submit our lives to the Lordship of Jesus, even if, even if it doesn't seem like it's going to make sense. And that we would not be divided in our allegiance to Jesus. Now, it's interesting that Samuel has already anointed Saul in private. He already took him aside and said, uh, Saul, you're going to be king. Samuel called him aside. He said, hey, I I haven't told anybody else this, but I'm telling you, God has anointed you. You are going to be the king of Israel. And Saul looks and he says, me? He says, really? Me? And then he gives him these series of, of... of unlikely events that are going to transpire. He goes, as you go home, on your way home, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, this is going to happen, so that you know that what I'm telling you is the truth. And sure enough, everything that Samuel prophesied to Saul took place. And so so Saul understood that God had already anointed him and ordained him to be the king. But now Samuel is bringing, bringing Saul before all of Israel because remember, Israel cried out for a king like every other nation. And it wasn't necessarily the monarchy that, that, was, that was antithetical to God's word. It wasn't necessarily the, the kingship that, that God had specifically forbidden. But that whenever they said, I want to be like every other nation, God had called them to be a holy people. He had called them to be set apart. He had called them to be other. And yet they said, we want to be like everybody else. It's a good thing we don't suffer with that. It's a good thing we don't ever, ever suffer from, from those same Uh, those same delusions and those same temptations but here we have the public anointing of Saul and it's interesting as Samuel begins this coronation service he begins it very crudely did 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 you see that in the text look at go back in first Samuel chapter 10 and I want you to see verses 18 and 19 Samuel brings all the people together. And he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I have brought you out of the land of Egypt. I have delivered you from your enemies. I have delivered you from all those people who who were oppressing you. And you would think that the next verse would say, Now I am going to give you your king, this king whom, whom loves me and serves me, and he is going to lead you into the next stage in Israel's history. But that's not what he says. He says, I am the God of Israel who has delivered you, who has brought you out of bondage. And you are a bunch of bums who can't follow the rules. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, but today you've rejected me. Today you you have sought out for yourself a king like every other nation. He says, you have done the very thing that I told you not to do. But here's your king. God loved Israel enough to tell him the truth. How many of us, moms and dads, how many of us, whenever we were children, teenagers, young adults, maybe old adults, have done something incredibly stupid? I I have, I have, 
I've done lots of things incredibly stupid. In fact, in fact, uh, whenever whenever we moved out of whenever we moved out of our uh, whenever my parents moved out of their house into the uh, into the house they're in now, uh, we had a desk in our and my brother and I had a desk in our bedroom, and mom was moving you know, we were moving the furniture out and she said, "What in the world happened to the finish on top of this desk?" I mean, the, the, it's a solid piece of furniture, it, it, but the finish on top of this desk is just, it's, it's horrible. Well, she now knows that, that whenever, she didn't know then, she now knows that whenever we were younger, my brother and I realized that that hairspray is flammable. And so what we would do was we would take our names with, with hairspray and we'd write our names on top of the desk and light it on fire. Inside the house. Because nothing could ever go wrong by doing that. And, and so we would, we would, we just, we would, we were kids. We did stupid things. And, and sometimes, sometimes we do things not realizing what could, what could be the outcome. I've got a couple of pictures up here of some really, really stupid things. You know, this guy, this guy decides he doesn't need a ladder. Why would you need a ladder, right? I've got, I've got a couple five-gallon buckets. I think I've actually done this before. I, I, I think I've actually done this. The next slide. I saw, I believe I saw this guy going down Airline Highway the other day. I, I, I really do. I think I saw this guy going down Airline Highway. And the, the next slide. I haven't done this, but it, this looks like something I would definitely try. But... There is a reality that none of that is going to end well. None of that is going, it's just the reality is, is that it, it's not going to end well. That guy's got to get off of those five-gallon buckets somehow. And he does not look like the most agile fella. <clears throat> you know, the, 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 the poor guy holding the, 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 the trunk closed, I know he had the greatest of intentions, but, but physics tells me that's not going to work. And, and I, I understand the theory behind the four-wheeler and the air mattress, but, but an air mattress is not a set of skis. It's just not. Sometimes we need people in our lives to tell us, you're an idiot. Sometimes we need people in our lives to tell us, don't do that stupid thing that you're about to do. The scripture tells us in Proverbs that, that it is the fool who hates discipline. It is, it is the one who, who lacks knowledge that hates reproof. That's what Solomon said. God loved Israel enough to tell them, you are about to make a big mistake. It's interesting during this coronation, God tells Israel, he says, this is, this is not good. I'm about to anoint and appoint a king over you, but this is not my desire. It's interesting, God tells Israel the truth, but he does so in love. So many times we think simply telling the truth and warning people of the mistakes that they're going to make is sufficient. 
But I want you to notice what Paul says in the book of Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15, he says, But speak the truth in love. You know, so many times I think that, that we justify our, our discipline, our, our chastisement of other believers or of our family, of our children, and, and, and we say, but they needed to hear the truth. I needed to expose whatever wickedness or whatever, whatever uh, uh, immorality or whatever it was that was about to happen. I needed to speak the truth. And yes, we need to speak the truth, but we need to do so in love. The scripture tells us in Galatians chapter 6 that in gentleness that we should reprove one another for, the, for the, the, the desire of reconciliation and restoration, that it ought to be done in gentleness and in love. And so parents, whenever your children are being stupid, tell them they're being stupid, but do so in love. When your brother and sister in Christ is about to, is about to walk into a landmine, whenever, whenever they are making decisions that we know that they're going to end badly because we've done the same things, we've made those same mistakes, there is a way that we can speak the truth to our brothers and sisters in love. There's a way that we can warn them, say, don't make those same mistakes. Look at the wounds, look at the scars that I am carrying so that we can admonish one another. It's interesting. God tells Israel the truth, and yet he anoints and appoints Saul. What's interesting is the methodology for which Samuel appoints and anoints Saul as the king. If you look at the text, in verse 20, it says, Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel together, and Benjamin was taken by Lot. What does this mean? This means that, that, that God had already told Samuel, this is the king. He's from the tribe of Benjamin. He's from the family of Kish. His name is Saul. This is the king. He'd already met him. They'd already had a formal introduction. They'd already had a dinner. They'd already, you know, re remember last week, Samuel had set aside the choicest meat, and Saul came in, and, and he said, look, we've already got, we've already got the, the filet set up for you. Go ahead and, you know, sit down and eat. There was already that meeting. Samuel knew exactly who it was, but the nation of Israel did not. And so there was a, in order that the nation of Israel would know that this is God's king, that there was this process by which Saul was selected. And this process was, from Israel's perspective, chance. It was lot. It was, it was by the sovereignty of God. There's only one other time in Scripture, up until this point, that this method has been used in singling out an individual. Only one other time, up until this point in the history of Scripture. And that's whenever Achan was selected in the book of Joshua. Let me recap the story for you real quickly. The book of Joshua, Joshua and uh, the, the nation of Israel walk into, they, they cross the Jordan River, they go into the city of the nation of Israel. The city of Jericho is heavily fortified. It. They march around the city seven times. They blow the horns, they blow the trumpets. The walls fall down. They go into the city. They destroy everything. God said destroy everything, every man, woman, child, every, every donkey, every, every ox, every kitty cat, every, every, everything. Destroy everything. Burn all the fine linen. Destroy, melt down all the gold. Destroy it all. And Achan said, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be almost obedient. I'll destroy everything except this. He takes it and he hides it under his tent. And they go into the next battle and they get 
they, they, they get their behinds kicked, and as they come back, Joshua goes before God, and he says, God, what happened? I thought you were with us. And God said, there's sin in the camp. Joshua says, what do I do? And God says, take all the tribes of Israel and begin to cast lots. And as you cast lots, I will reveal to you where the sin is. It's the only other time up until this point in the history of, this, uh, the history of redemption, the history of the Bible, that we see this process used to isolate an individual. And it's when there was sin in the camp. I believe that there may be some parallelism there. So we see God communicating to the nation of Israel, this is my king. This is my king. And Israel, an Israelite selected from among you. And I want us to notice how God describes Saul. How the narrator describes Saul. We're only given one aspect of description for the, for the king of Israel. We're not told about his heart. We're not told about his, his military might. We're not told about his intelligence. We're not told about his wisdom. We're not told about his wealth. The only thing we're told is that he's tall. Well, what great qualifications for a king, right? He's tall. That's all we're told about Saul. Look at verse 23. So they ran and they took him from there. And when he stood up, stood up amongst the people, he was taller than all the other people. And all the people said, long live the king. It's interesting. All throughout scripture, the only people that are described as tall apart from Saul are Gentiles. No Israelite is ever described as tall. I would have fit right in. No Israelite is ever described as tall. The only people described as tall are the Gentiles. Remember whenever Israel goes into the promised land to spy out the land, what do they come back? They say, those guys are huge. They're enormous. They're going to kick our butts. The only time the size of the of people are, 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 act, are uh, accentuated is whenever they're talking about the Gentiles or the enemies of God. God anoints Saul as the king. And I think it's interesting, as they anoint Saul as the king, they can't find him. I've been there. You go to leave. You don't know where your children are. You don't know where their shoes are. They get to the point, they've cast the lots. The lot has fallen to Benjamin to the house of Kish, to Saul. And they say, where is Saul? We can't find him. Look at verse 22. Therefore they inquire further of the Lord. I want us to understand the process that's taken place. It's not like they looked around and said, we can't find Saul, and they begin asking around, and they say, oh, he's hiding over there by the luggage. They've already been through that process. Have you seen Saul? Do you know where Saul is? Where is Saul? We can't find Saul. I don't know. I thought I saw him when he came. I thought he was with you. No, he was. So this is not the process. This is not where they are. They've already exhausted all of their own efforts trying to find Saul. And so they go to the Lord. Now, let's back up. Let's back up just a few chapters. How does Saul end up becoming king? 
He begins searching for what? Lost donkeys. We remember? His father's donkeys had been, had been lost. And Saul spends days searching for these lost donkeys. And does Saul ever come about these donkeys? No. He finally gets to Samuel and Samuel said, Oh, by the way, the donkeys are home. God did not need Saul to find the donkeys. God was able to find the donkeys and bring them home all by himself. We see highlighted in that whole narrative that Saul is completely and and unequivocally inept to do what God has called him to do. And here, here we see highlighted that not only is Saul completely and unequivocally inept and ill-prepared to do what God has called them to do, so is Israel. They can't even find the guy that they're trying to anoint as king. God highlights their complete ineptitude and their complete dependence upon him. They can't even find their king to anoint him. They have to go to God to say, hey, we know he was here earlier, but can you reveal him to us? Because we can't even find our king to anoint him. They were completely and utterly dependent upon God. Do you think God is trying to communicate something to the nation of Israel? You don't need a king, you need me. I believe that that is what God desires to communicate to us, church. We don't need a 401k that's got multi-millions of dollars so that we can retire in, 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 in ease and in, in, in happiness. We need God. We don't need a big fancy house. We don't, need a big, we don't need what this world says that we need. We need to be completely and utterly dependent upon God. We don't need a husband or a wife or family or children. Those are blessings and gifts that the Lord has given us. We must be completely dependent upon God. When we place anyone or anything above our dependence upon God, that is what the Bible calls idolatry. Sometimes we can't say amen, we got to say ouch, right? I believe that as God's people, we are called to embrace our dependence upon Him. The hymn writer said, I need thee every hour. Every hour I need thee. And I think that in our American pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps, we want to have the mindset and the the idea that, that we don't need anyone. We don't need anything. We can do it ourselves we're John Wayne, we're the Lone Ranger, we, we, we can do this. But God has designed us to be intensely relational. God has designed us to depend not only upon one another, but to depend upon Him and depend upon Him fully. He says in Proverbs chapter 3, 5, and 6, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understandings. In all of your ways acknowledge Him and He will direct your path. The psalmist says, Thy word is a light into my path and it, it gives us direction. God desires for us to lean upon Him. 
He tells his children, he says, Lo, I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. There was a reason God said, I will be with you, because he understood that they will need him and that they will have to depend upon him. In John chapter 14, verse 6, when he talks about the coming of the Holy Spirit, he says, and when that time comes, the paraclete, the helper, God's Holy Spirit will come to you and will guide you and teach you and direct you in all things. Why? Because God understands that we are dependent on him. And we must understand our dependence and embrace our dependence. It's interesting. Israel is completely inept to even find their king. So they say, God, we can't find our king. Will you show him to us? He says, oh yeah, he's over there hiding. That's the guy I want serving me. That's the guy I want leading me into the battle, the guy who's hiding in the baggage because he doesn't want to be coronated. He's going to deliver us from the Philistines. Is there something I'm missing? So they go get him. They drag him out from behind the the suitcases and the baggage, and, and they bring him up, and they say, oh, by the way, Saul, you're going to be king. And what's interesting is verse 25. after they anoint him as king. He says, this guy's really tall. He's going to be your king. They say, long live the king. Verse 25. Then Samuel took the order, the people. He told the people the ordinances of the kingdom, and he wrote them in a book, and he placed them before the Lord, and Samuel sent all the people away to their own house. So he anoints him as king, and he says, okay, Saul, here is how you should govern. Here is how you you should live. Here is how you should rule your people. He gave him the ordinances, the law that God desired for him to rule the kingdom by. And I think we misunderstand the law. The law was not given to the nation of Israel to make them holy. To keep them righteous. The law was given to the nation of Israel as a thermometer to reveal to them their unrighteousness and their need for God's righteousness, their complete dependence upon Him. I want you to notice something. Go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. I want us to see this is the first time God gives the nation of Israel law. In Exodus, chapter 20, God gives the nation of Israel the law, the Ten Commandments. And he does so after verses 1 and 2. Exodus chapter 20, we're going to to read just just the first few verses. Then God spoke all these words to Israel, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. And then he goes into verse 3, Therefore you shall have no other gods before me. I want us to notice that the law begins after salvation not before salvation the law doesn't bring us salvation the law and our obedience and our adherence to the law is a result of our salvation do you see the 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 pattern here if you go back to first samuel chapter 10 god said i am the god who delivered you i am the god who brought you i am the god who set up this king before you now here's the law the law is not our means to salvation 
The law is not our, our mechanism by which we earn salvation, and that's where the Pharisees missed it. That's where, that's where those who were obsessed with the law miss it. The law is a result, and our obedience to the law, and our, our uh, ethical behavior, and our moral behavior, and our righteous behavior is a result of our salvation, not a means to our salvation. He says, because I have delivered you, because I have saved you, I desire you to live like this so that you will remain free. So that you will be able to live and enjoy your freedom. He said, I've already delivered you. I've already saved you. I've already brought you out of bondage. And in order for you to stay free from bondage, you must, you must not serve other gods. You must not give yourself to false idols. You must worship the Lord and the Lord alone. You should not take the Lord's name in vain. You should not murder. You should not steal. You should not bear false witness. You should not do all these things because in doing those things, you are placing yourself back into bondage. The purpose of the law is not to give us salvation, but to reveal to us our need for salvation. God gives Saul the law, and it's interesting, as he leaves, verse 26 and verse 27 reveal the heart of the people of Israel. Some people really liked him. Some people really didn't like him. This is proof that they were Baptists. No matter what decisions made, somebody's going to be mad, somebody's going to be happy. It doesn't matter what decision, doesn't matter who's the pastor, doesn't matter who's the king, doesn't matter who the worship leader is, doesn't matter who the, the, the deacons are, somebody's going to be happy and somebody's going to be mad. They were Baptists. They probably, after this, that they probably formed a committee and had a business meeting and, and you know, they, they probably passed a bunch of, uh, a, a bunch of bylaws and, and, and I'm, I'm quite certain that that took place. We're, we're not, it's not recorded in Scripture, but I'm quite certain it happened. God anoints Saul as king and there was a division amongst the people. It's interesting that it wasn't only Saul that brought division. But if you go to the book of Luke, chapter 12, whenever God sent a future king, the king of kings and the Lord of lords, in Luke chapter 12, the scripture tells us that those people were divided as well. If you go to the book of Luke, chapter 12, verse 51, we see as God sent Jesus... As God sent Jesus in Luke chapter 12, verse 51. Jesus said this, he says, Do you suppose that I came to grant peace on earth? I tell you no, but rather division. Why? Because as Jesus came, there were those religious leaders, those Pharisees, those, those who sought to, to gain power and influence and money that said, we do not want this man to rule over us. We do not want him to to be our king we see this in john chapter 6 they said of jesus they said is this man is this not jesus the son of joseph the carpenter whose father and mother we know and this is supposed to be the king not this man not this jesus the officials they They said themselves, the high priest, when they were crucifying Jesus, 
They looked at Pilate. And they said, we have no king but Caesar. So we will not have this man rule over us. It is my contention that today in our society, in our Western world, we have that same sentiment. We don't mind, we don't mind Jesus' benevolent acts. In fact, we will even teach our children the stories. We'll teach them about Noah's Ark, and we'll teach them about the creation. We'll teach them about how Jesus took five loaves of bread and two fish and fed the thousands. We'll teach them about how Jesus walked on the water. We'll teach them about how Jesus cast the demons into the pigs. We'll teach them about how Jesus made the lame man to walk. We'll teach them all the stories about Jesus. We don't mind his benevolent acts. We don't even mind his teachings. How Jesus said, turn the other cheek. As Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We'll even teach them the things that Jesus taught. But we will not submit our, man, we will not submit our lives to this man. Because we know what's best for us. There's a way that seems right to man and the end thereof is death. There's a way that seemed right to Israel. And the end thereof left them in exile, left them wandering. God desires to be our king. He desires to be the one who is able to say yes, no. He is the one who desires to give us direction. He is the one who desires to speak to us daily through his word. He is the one who desires to give us inclination and and direction through his living spirit called the holy spirit he is the one who desires to be the one who is in charge of our lives and we have a responsibility to say yes we have a responsibility to submit to him because the truth is church the truth is is that jesus is king he is king of kings and lord of lords and the scripture tells us that at the name of jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we have two choices. We will either submit to Jesus as king here on this earth, or we will bow to Jesus as king on the other side of this earth. But there is a reality that Jesus is king, and it's my desire that they, today that you submit to him and that you say, yes, Lord, come, be the king of my life. Let's pray. God, your word is very clear that we do not want you as the king of our lives. We do not want you as the ruler. We want to be the ruler. We want to be the one who fulfills our own desires. God, may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts. Lord, there are those here this morning who are here not by chance, not by happenstance, Lord, but they're here by your sovereign direction. And as they are here, Lord, you've spoken to them and you've said, you've called them to serve you. You've called them to submit their lives to you. And as they do so, may they find grace and mercy and compassion. Lord, your word tells us that judgment is your strange work, but you abound in loving kindness. God, may today we see that loving kindness in the person of Jesus.
as we go into this hymn of invitation, if there's someone here who needs to surrender their life, submit their life to Jesus, I pray that you would come up. I'd love to pray with you. Maybe you need to grab someone and go to the altar. Maybe you're going through a difficult time in your life and you simply need somebody to pray with you. Maybe, maybe this morning God has spoken to your heart. Maybe this morning God is calling you to be a part of what we're doing right here at Redeemer. Maybe God's calling you to be obedient by, by being baptized. Maybe God is calling you to serve in a greater capacity. Whatever it is the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart during this time of invitation, may you find yourself obedient. In Jesus' name.